But the idea of the American policy, at least as it's stated in print, is this extraordinary idea that China and Russia are out to shape a world not just perhaps different from U.S. values and interests, but antithetical to U.S. values and interests. And this, I think, is the mindset of our security establishment. Similarly, in 2018, it is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions. Well, why is this point of view so prevalent these days in Washington? Clearly, well, I should say not clearly. In my opinion, it all relates to a kind of neurotic view of China because of China's economic recovery during the past 40 years. There has been a significant rebalancing of the world economy. China is not the impoverished country that it was in 1980. It has become a large, modern, innovative, dynamic economy. And this, I think, is the real source of American policymakers' concerns, not China's ambitions, but simply China's size and success, which is a quite different matter after all. So this is a graph showing the last 200 years, estimates, of course, of the share of different regions in the total world economy. The world economy means the sum of the national gross domestic products to create a notion of a world product, and then looking at the share of each part of the world in that. Well, back in 1820, the line at the top that you see, if you can see this clearly, a blue line was at 0.6 or 60% of the world economy. That is the share of Asia in the world economy back in 1820. It may seem surprising that Asia had 60% of the world economy, but remember, Asia had 60% of the world's population. Everybody was poor, and so the world economy shares by region were roughly the shares of population of each region. But if you can see, follow that line throughout the course of the next two centuries, Asia's share of the world economy diminishes sharply to reach the lowest point in 1950. What does this reflect? This reflects, of course, Britain's, the British Empire's colonization of India and the Western increase in control over China, followed by the disarray of China in the first half of the 20th century, warlordism, civil war, and Japan's invasion of China. China had a terrible 130 years from 1820 to 1950, and China fell precipitously into profound poverty from having been a sophisticated society, albeit an agrarian society. China went into disarray 
massive domestic violence and deaths, uh, repeated invasions from the outside world, and therefore, essentially, the uh, loss opportunity of industrialization before 1950. If you trace that blue line from 1950 to today, you see, like a giant U, Asia's share turns upward. And in fact, China, of course, since 1980 in particular, achieved more than a 30-time increase of GDP because it doubled essentially every seven or eight years in total economic size. Now, the black line at the top uh, of the middle of the diagram, which starts at about 30% and then peaks at about 70%, is what I call the North Atlantic region. It's the U.S., Canada, and Europe. And we became a North Atlantic world in the 19th century with the rise of the European empires, and then in the 20th century with the American surge to uh, become the largest economy by far in the world, especially after uh, Europe's uh, two uh, devastating wars, the world economy became a North Atlantic economy. The industrial age was a North Atlantic age, and it meant that not only were the North Atlantic economies, the industrial economies, but the European imperialism uh, and U.S. imperialism dominated the world, uh, at least until the end of World War II. After World War II, Europe, of course, lost its empires uh, in, at, uh, uh, over a, a period of 30 or 40 years, uh, and the newly independent countries, and notably the People's Republic of China, and also India, and other countries of Asia, the notable rapid growth recovery of Japan, the growth of uh, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and so forth, uh, meant that the North Atlantic share of the world economy consequently diminished as Asia recovered a normal place in the world economy, not a superlative place, not overtaking the per capita income of the North Atlantic, but beginning to narrow a large gap in per capita income that it opened up during the 130 years from 1820 to 1950. Well, roughly around 2020, you could say that the total Western world, if you add in the European Union, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, was overtaken by the East A by East Asia alone, China, Japan, Korea, and ASEAN countries. This is rather extraordinary that uh, the East Asian world now is a larger economy than the not only the North Atlantic world, but the North Atlantic plus Oceania. And if we look at China and the U.S. alone, using purchasing power parity defined world, uh, national economies, that is defining the U.S. and uh, Chinese economy 
at world prices, China overtook the United States in absolute size roughly around uh, 2014, and now is a considerably larger economy in absolute scale. It's important to remember, please, that China is four times more populous than the United States, 1.4 billion people compared to 330 million in the United States. So even though China is in absolute scale, a larger economy, China continues to be only about one-third of the per capita income level of the United States measured at international prices and measured at market prices even less than that, roughly about a fifth of the U.S. GDP. So China is still a developing country, considerably poorer per capita than the United States and Europe, but being a country of 1.4 billion people, it is a very large economy, indeed the single largest economy in the world, measured at international prices and number two measured at uh, market prices and market exchange rates. I should add that China has become a very innovative economy as well. Starting roughly at the beginning of the 21st century, <coughs> China began to invest heavily in science and technology, uh, graduating hundreds of thousands of PhDs each year. And the results are very exciting. Uh, and I put that in a positive note. China has become a highly innovative economy with many cutting-edge technologies. This scares the wits out of the United States, but I rather think this is a benefit for the world because China's innovations will play a significant role or should and can play a significant role in human well-being. I've worked for many years in Africa and have watched China's anti-malarial medicine, artemisinin, save the lives of vast numbers in Africa, millions and millions of lives. That's an example of, in that case, a Nobel Prize winning innovation from China with huge global benefits. Another huge benefit is that China developed very low-cost uh, production systems for photovoltaics, for wind turbines, for large-distance uh, power transmission, and for 5G. So many countries are the beneficiaries of these technological advances. Of course, unfortunately, in Washington, it's not seen that way. Uh, it's seen as absolutely terrifying that what is supposed to be the American-led world the American century, American dominance, and American primacy is threatened by this interloper. And it's viewed as illegitimate, but most importantly, as dangerous.